Maximizing Recovery After Brain Injury. Welcome to the 2019 Brain Injury Conference, Brain Injury Rehabilitation, the Health and Wellness Connection, sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and Kessler Foundation. Each year, an estimated 2.8 Americans sustain a traumatic brain injury and face a wide range of physical, functional, emotional, and social challenges. This course will focus on the importance of an individual's overall health, wellness, and rehabilitation and recovery. Topics will include personal identity, cognition and memory, maintaining relationships, and the capacity to return to fitness and other physical activities. In this podcast, Dr. Neil Jacy, Director of Brain Injury Rehabilitation at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation presents Maximizing Recovery After Brain Injury. This presentation was recorded, produced, and edited by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Wednesday, May 15, 2019, at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, Chester Campus, Chester, New Jersey. Interested in more conference lecture podcasts? Click on the playlist link listed in the description of this podcast. Let's listen in. Here, they're looking at mostly people that go to the ED visits. The numbers underneath that stay pretty constant, so generally about 50,000 deaths per year due to TBI, you know, generally two to 300,000 hospital admissions, and then you have 5.3 uh, million survivors and climbing. And then of course, the concussion numbers really vary pretty wildly, uh, mostly because there's such an underreporting rate for concussion, right? estimated to be about 50%. So this slide is interesting. This, if you take a look, the bottom line there, the red line, are number of hospitalizations. The purple and blue, the purple is total number of TBIs per year, and the blue is ED visits. So there's, there's like, there's a distinct uptick about 2007. Um, what they think really happened here is that people just became more aware of TBI, right? So this is um, parents bringing their kids who fell. This is kids who got injured playing sports. Uh, just to be safe with all the hype that was out there going to the ED. What I think is really interesting about this is this dip in deaths here in this green line, um, probably due to some of the acute care measures that the trauma surgeons, neurosurgeons, uh, and other team members perform at the acute care hospital, right? So more people are living. Uh, but the hospitalizations really have stayed the same. So to me what that says is, um, what we're seeing more of are the moderate to severe injuries that maybe would not have survived previously. So then they come to us in rehab. So there is this misconception that TBI uh, isn't, ooh, I'll stay over here, that TBI is an event, right? Um, I had this conversation twice yesterday and another time today where people say to you, when am I going to get better? When is this going to end, right? And these are people who are years after their injury and my very frank and sometimes tear-inducing in answer is it's not. You know, there will almost always be some residual deficit after the brain injury. Um, things get better, things get better years after the injury, uh, but there's almost always something. So this, this, this uh, I guess, concept of it being a, a more of a chronic issue was really introduced by uh, Maisel and DeWitt in 2010. And what they did is they really, they just took the definition of, from the World Health Organization of a chronic injury and matched it to TBI, and it matches really, really well, right? It's permanent, 
non-reversible pathological alterations, requires specific training, uh, and requires periods of observation, supervision, and care. So you can see how this would match with anything from you know, hypertension, diabetes, anything like that. So then they took it a little, little ways further, uh, Malik et al. in 2013, and again, matched it pretty, pretty closely. So medical issues are ongoing, you have to prevent secondary issues, right? Hydrocephalus, seizure disorder, et cetera. Um, and then services for community reintegration and on. This, this concept of the new normal is a really key concept and something that, again, I, I, said, that, I said it twice yesterday and once today, um, that we have to try and introduce to people who have had brain injuries who are really suffering from these long-term chronic issues. Uh, it's an adjustment. You know, typically what happens is they learn to kind of deal with it. The woman I saw yesterday, who was probably three years out from her injury, said, you know, really, I'm learning how to pace myself. I know that if I go out and I do X, Y, and Z, I'm going to really pay for it the next couple days. So then I just do the first two things, and I'd skip that third thing. Or I know that, um, you know, another person actually I saw yesterday said, I know that if I work for more than an, an hour and a half, I'm going to crash. So I stop. I stop right at that hour and a half mark and take a break. So they learn to, hana, to kind of compensate for these deficits. Uh, quick timeline for medical issues. So when people present to the hospital, what are we worried about, right? We're worried about seizures, hydrocephalus, agitation, spasticity, dysautonomia is a huge one, um, all of which you know, we are addressing right away and then we are addressing long-term as well, arousal, sleep, et cetera. Well, we're not gonna obviously touch on really any of these, um, maybe one or two, because that's not the purpose of this lecture, but we know that they're there. So the timeline for care, there's the time of injury, acute care, acute rehab, and then ongoing lifelong. Okay, and then what are our goals? Especially, it starts in acute care and it goes on to acute rehab and then on after that. So the practical goals, stabilizing and monitoring the person with the injury, right? We're trying to watch out for hydrocephalus and treat it if it, if it pops up. We're trying to treat spasticity. The literature is telling us that the earlier we treat spasticity, you know, not just with range of motion and splinting and positioning, but also with interventions such as intrathecal baclofen pumps, uh, botulinum toxin injections, nerve blocks, doing these things early on in the hospital stay. The acute hospital stay makes a difference. Um, as a quick aside, I was talking with a former fellow of mine yesterday who was, who was at Penn. Uh, he saw a patient, uh, unfortunately had a drug overdose, who severe anoxic brain injury uh, was, by the time he came to us, he was still probably vegetative, but storming like crazy. Um, and this former fellow of mine was able to convince the surgeons and the neurologists on the case to put an intrathecal baclofen pump in while the kid was still in the ICU. All right, so he came to us, he's, he's, he's storming, he's flexed, he's got all kinds of tone, we were able to get him off of, he was on morphine and Ativan and Baclofen and everything else. Finally able to get him off of that. He was with us for eight weeks. Then he went to subacute. I just got a video of him walking the other day with just a rolling walker and an AFO. Um, really remarkable. Yes? The catheter tip? I don't know exactly, but it wasn't any higher than probably upper lumbar, lower thoracic. Um, so to complete that story, what we actually did while he was in acute rehab 
is we did uh, botulinum toxin injections for his elbow flexors, wrist flexors, and probably, if I remember correctly, a little bit for the hamstrings and stuff too. Um, so those are some of the practical approaches. And then theoretical. So we're trying to, the, the purpose of, the, or the title of this talk is maximizing recovery, right? Basically, neurorecovery happens, there are two different components of it. There's um, the neuroplasticity component to it, which I'll go into more depth on later in this talk. And then there's the secondary inflammation or secondary injury component, which I'll touch on, but won't go into tremendous depth. So theoretically, what we're trying to do is maximize both of those components, and I'll tell you how. So how does early intervention impact people's recovery after a traumatic injury? Right, this is a really hard thing to measure because if you think about someone in the acute care hospital, in the neurosurgical ICU, there's so many different things going on, different medications, different treatments, you know, there's surgery, there's all kinds of stuff, how do we measure? So, this was a, a question that we were really kind of tackling. So Dr. Grease, Christine Grease, was a, another formal fellow of mine. Um, any of you who have worked at university may know Dr. Yonklas. Um, and then actually, I think Irene and, and Nancy are lecturing to you later tonight. Um, so we put together this paper, this project, trying to figure out if what we do early on, you know, day zero, makes a difference. So Kessler um, is as I'm sure you know, part of the model systems, um, which is a federally designated grant program. Um, so what happens is patients who present to four, now it's five, different hospitals in New Jersey, which are all level one, one's a level one trauma center, the other I think are level two, they then come into Kessler, into the filter, and then they're tracked for five to 10 years after their injury, right? So we have a tremendous amount of data on these people. So we were able to compare, because only one hospital has a physiatrist, a brain injury trained physiatrist on staff, whereas the other three do not, we were able to compare the patients that came from that hospital to the ones that came to the, from the other three. Um, we you know, really took into account the severity of the injury, so we matched. We excluded the patients with disorder of consciousness, you know, minimally conscious vegetative patients. Um, we excluded outliers for length of stay because we really tried to kind of make everything uniform and even. Um, the injury severity score was not different. And then we measured, uh, the main outcome measure was looking at the FIM, both the motor and cognitive component. So what we noticed was when you measured the FIM on admission to rehab and then on discharge to rehab, there really wasn't a tremendous difference. There's no significant difference between the people coming from the physiatry group and the non-physiatry group. But if you looked at it closer, the people that came from the physiatry hospital actually had a lower FIM starting out and actually had a higher FIM when they finished. Um, and then what we did is to try and, try and measure the impact of the physiatrist um, on that individual as we looked at the medications because that was really the biggest difference. And we grouped the neurostimulants, the neurodepressants, and the sleep medications. So these are the graphs. The, the one on the left here is the FIM motor, and the one on the your left and the one on my right, uh, or your right, is also is FIM cognitive, okay? And you'll notice, so the dark line is the physiatry group, and the dotted line is the non-physiatry group. So you can see how the different slopes there are there in those lines. And when we looked at the effect of time on the improvement, actually there was a main effect, so there's a significant effect on the improvement over time 
um, when you compared the two groups. So while the absolute numbers weren't different, the rate of improvement was significantly different and was significantly better in the group that came from the physiatry hospital. So early intervention makes a difference in terms of outcome. Now, to take an even deeper look at this, looking at the medications and the difference in medications, and I don't have to tell you, just looking at those percentages, that those are statistically significant, right? The stimulants, 54% to 5%, sleep medications, 34 to 16 the combination, 21 to 3 and then obviously there are more depressant medications used in the non-physiatry hospitals as opposed to the physiatry hospitals. And then to take that a step further, when you look at the impact of the medications on recovery, so this bar, excuse me, this bar here is your motor FIM score. The motor FIM score improves as you add medications. So this is no meds. This is um, stimulants but not sleep. This is sleep but not stimulants. And then this is both. Okay, so there is actually a statistically significant difference and improvement in people who are on the sleep medications and stimulant medications, and especially both when compared. And we'll kind of, as we talk about neuroplasticity, we'll kind of, you'll kind of see why maybe theoretically at least that would make a difference. Any questions on that? No? Okay. All right, so again, so we're, in acute reha we're in acute care, you know, based on this one paper, um, you know, there seems to be an improvement in people who get early uh, rehab care, right, in acute care. So now we're moving on to acute rehabilitation. So this is a definition in the main brain injury medicine textbook from Dr. Ivanhoe. Um, and I agree with her definition mostly. What I disagree with a little bit is this word allow. Right, to me that seems too passive. Um, what you probably saw in that last paper, and hopefully what I'll introduce to you um, in these upcoming slides, is that our intervention, what we do uh, proactively, really makes a difference. Okay? We're not just kind of guiding the person along the path, we're really propelling them. Uh, so again, preaching to the choir uh, with you guys on the importance of acute rehab, so I'm not gonna touch on that uh, too much. So this is just a rehash of that for sake of time. All right, so this slide, this one slide is a good 45 minute to an hour long lecture. Um, I will reduce it to two minutes. So secondary injury, what is secondary injury? Let me just flip ahead just for a quick second. So this is an illustration of a stroke, okay? Here's the thrombus. Here's the area of the dead tissue that the blood flow um, you know, fed. And then here's this huge area around it called the penumbra. And that area is what we're really concerned about because when that area comes back online is when people regain function after injury. Whether it's traumatic or whether it's a stroke or whether it's anoxic, it doesn't really matter. The process is generally the same. So you have the secondary injury. Um, so you have excitotoxicity. We know that after a traumatic injury, there's a surge of, of, of um, catecholamines, of uh, neurotransmitters, stimulant neurotransmitters, excitatory neurotransmitters that are revving the brain up, right? And that's really when the brain needs to be calmed down, which is the impetus behind, say, a pentobarb coma. Uh, we know that there's mitochondrial dysfunction, so the stretching of the axons disrupts the organelles and the mitochondria don't function correctly, and the mitochondria produce the ATP, which is responsible for homeostasis, right, the sodium-potassium pumps, which can lead to cell death. 
there's oxidative stress. So the breakdown of the lipid bilayer introduces free radical formations, which destroys tissue. There's inflammation, right? So there's swelling, there's um, in a confined space. There are uh, microglia, which are you know, different kinds of cells, which are the kind of the inflammatory mediators of the central nervous system that come in and produce inflammation. Then there's edema, there's cytotoxic and vasogenic edema. So again, the brain is a in a confined space. You know, there's only three things that really should be there. That's blood, that's brain, and that's CSF. And if there's anything else, um, it takes up space and pushes the brain where it shouldn't go, which then causes herniation and potentially death. All right, so we want to reduce all five of those. Questions on that? No? Good, okay. Uh, so this is, again, an illustration of what, what I just talked about. Right. And then the point of this slide, so here is obviously a very colorful uh, illustration of our brain. What I want you to focus on are these darkest shaded areas here. Here's the auditory uh, primary cortex. Here's the visual primary cortex. Here's the somatosensory primary cortex. And I want you to kind of get an appreciation for how small those are. Right? What's important here is this, all this other stuff, which is the association cortex. So that's really where kind of the magic happens. That's where all of our senses get integrated. That's where, especially on our frontal lobe, this is what makes us us, right? This is where our personality resides, it, our executive function. So all that, all this extra real estate here is what we're trying to exploit. All right, so inflammation. You know, I talk about inflammation as an acute thing, but really there's a thought that the inflammation is chronic and can go on for months, if not years, after an injury and that that ongoing inflammation is responsible for, or at least partially responsible for, the continued um, impairment of function. So this was a, obviously a very small study, it's only 10 patients. What they did is they did these different studies, MRIs and PET scans, with a specific ligand that attached itself to inflammatory cells, essentially. And then they scanned people who were you know, 11 months to 17 years after the injury. And what they found is that even people who are 17 years after their injury still have these markers of chronic inflammation going on in their brain. Um, and interestingly enough, it's not just, or especially it's not in the areas that, um, where the injury was, but it's actually other areas around it, okay? And the most, it was increased in these particular areas um, throughout. So again, evidence that there's ongoing inflammation and secondary injury even years and years after the initial injury. All right, so that's secondary injury in a very small nutshell. All right, any questions on that? No. Neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity is not, an, oops, is not a new concept. Here's a definition from 1890, right, where they talk about the malleability and, uh, but yet strength of the um, neural tissue. Neuroplasticity is what allows us to learn. It's, what, it's a normal process, right? It's what's responsible for um, uh, us, being, us improving on different tasks. If you're a musician, you know, likely if you're playing the piano or playing the violin, those areas in your brain that are represented by your hands and your fingers take up much more real estate than somebody who isn't a musician. Right, because your brain has adapted over time based on how much on the input. So these are just various studies that they looked at rats and obstacle courses and so on and so forth. So 
an interesting concept here is that relearning can take advantage of previous learning. It's easier to learn something again that you already knew. And then the function or behavior is masked by the inflammation, edema, and the neural inhibition that we see in secondary injury. So again, if we reduce that, we can unleash more function. So factors that, in, that influence neuroplasticity, I put unknown because really we're just you know, exploring. Um, there's limiting secondary injury. There are neurotrophic factors, which I'll touch on. So uh, chemicals that the brain secretes on its own, which produce neurogenesis, so the growth of new nerves and sprouting and new connections. There are neurotransmitters, um, and then repetition and interest. And this is where, so you know, pretty obvious where therapy comes into play, where practice comes into play, um, and how the, those activities then mold the brain uh, to accommodate. All right, so there are many neurotrophic factors. These are kind of two of the biggest ones that you read about, so BDNF or IGF-1. Um, so BDNF, uh, you know, it's a major modulator of brain plasticity. I have listed up there how it connects itself to the peripheral um, system, you know, so it helps, it influences endocrine and, and metabolism. It's released through exercise. Um, you know, they found increased levels in the hippocampus after exercise. It's released uh, in response to neurotransmitters as well, so stimulant medications. So perhaps this is a mechanism why in people who got stimulant medications did better, right, on their motor uh, FIMS than people who didn't. And then insulin-like growth factor, again, it's a major neurotrophic factor within the nervous system. It actually is one of the major things, I didn't put it up here, but blocks apoptosis, which is program cell death, right? So it preserves the cells from dying. Uh, and again, it's released um, in response to exercise. It's released in response to just general health as well. All right, so this is really interesting. Let me take a sip of water before I get into this. Okay. So this is like, this is proof that what we do every day um, makes a tangible difference in the person's brain. So over here you have, these are, so what they did is they, they took some monkeys um, and they, they put these electrodes on their brain so they can map out um, how their brains were functioning. So there's, there's a control group and a train group. So in the train group, what you're looking for is the amount of green, okay? So those are the, um, that's in response to whatever activity they were training them to do. So obviously there's more green in the trained than in the control. And then when they looked at the neurons in these areas, so here's a neuron, these are dendrites and dendritic spines coming off and forming connections. There's substantially more dendrites and spines in the train group, directly in response to the training that they're receiving. So you say, okay, great. Well, that's in the you know, kind of normal healthy population. In, in this experiment, what they did is they induced a stroke. So again, no motor rehab, pre-stroke, this is what it looked like. Post-stroke, you can see it pretty an absence of green down here. And then these are the neurons, and there aren't that many. So with rehab, here's pre-stroke, what it looked like, pretty much the same. And then post-stroke, you have significantly more green activity. And in this area with the green, significantly more um, dendritic sprouting and neurons and connections. Right, so this is, this is what's happening in the brain with rehab. Pretty cool, I think. Okay. Um, 
so again, really tangible proof. So here's a more modern definition of neuroplasticity. So the capacity of the neurons to structurally and functionally adapt. Um, so again, it happens in both the healthy and the damaged brain. And what are some of the factors? So certainly health status, right? Age, the healthier, younger population, we already know, tends to do better after injury. Um, and this perhaps is a reason why. Lifestyle as well. Time after injury, um, nature and location of the injury, all these influence the amount of neuroplasticity. And then there's two main mechanisms for functional improvement. There's recovery and compensation. We good so far? Yeah? Okay. Okay, so um, what I was trying to impress upon you with that other slide of the very colorful brain is redundancy, is the fact that there are different areas that perform similar functions within the brain. So there's both internal redundancy, so within the primary cortical areas, your visual, your auditory, your, your somatosensory, uh, and your motor. And then there's external, so across different brain areas. So they know that if you stimulate even one of these areas, like you stimulate the visual cortex, the auditory cortex starts to light up too, right? Because there is this cross-connectivity. Um, and then when you have really significant cross-connectivity, there, there are interesting things that happened you know, on one end, um, which is synesthesia, which I'm not gonna really gonna talk about. Have you, do you guys know what synesthesia is? Um, so it's a really interesting phenomenon where people, you know, taste colors, right? Or hear um, numbers, or so that you have this cross connection between different senses, which happens normally not just in relation to injury, or not in relation to injury. Um, so here are some examples of this redundancy. So again, I thought this was pretty interesting uh, here at the bottom. In people who are blind, you have these neuroimaging studies that show that other areas of the brain are picking up the slack and um, are involved in communication. Um, and then five days of blindfolding in someone who isn't blind, actually the visual cortex then gets recruited for other functions. Because the brain, use it or lose it, right? So the brain's like, well, we're not gonna use that. I'm gonna take that and do something else with it. Um, so recovery, we have recovery and compensation. So recovery, diaschesis is a really interesting, whoops, geez, wrong button. Really interesting phenomenon where if you have area A and you have area B, and area A is injured but area B is not, because of some reason, you know, perhaps it's metabolism, whatever, the injury to area, B, area A shuts down area B, right? So the thought is that as area A comes back online, Area B then comes back online. Um, and you know, it's hard to prove that that's what's going on in our day to day, but I can tell you I've seen you know, people, especially this one person who sticks out in my mind, who you know, her injury was way in the back, um, really nowhere near her motor cortex, but she was you know, diffusely weak on her right side. Over the course of a week to a week and a half, she went from zeros to fours. Um, and I think it's probably because as this area was healing, you know, the other, the motor cortex then came back online. And so you have this profound improvement. Um, a lot of times, again, relating it back to secondary injury, you have these areas of inflammation, edema, metabolism, blood flow, neuronal excitability, all these other things going on that we're trying to limit, um, which then once those recover, uh, diaschesis allows the other site to come back online. All right, and then compensation. So compensation is basically 
you know, one area of the brain helping out an area that was injured, um, where it maybe normally wouldn't have, and now it's being recruited to do it. All right, so physical exercise. So, you know, these are ways really to improve neuroplasticity and, and, and um, improve outcomes uh, as best we can. So exercise has really been proven to enhance neuroplasticity. Um, it's effective both in the young and the old. While it probably may be more effective in the young, exercise is beneficial for everybody. Um, and it's not just aerobic exercise, but resistance training is helpful as well, although the aerobic exercise does tend to be better. Right? It does tend to promote neuroplasticity a little bit more. Um, potential mechanisms of how it actually works. So you have synaptogenesis. Basically, you know, we're forming more connections um, and more uh, synapses are forming as a result of the exercise, which again probably relates back to the neurotrophic factors, the BDNF and the IGF-1. All right. Um, so in terms of maximizing recovery, we're talking about starting early, all right, intervening early works. Um, we're talking about minimizing secondary injury, uh, improving neurorecovery, improving plasticity. Now we'll make the case for, again, brain injury rehab. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, so what I want to do is talk about a couple of issues around brain injury rehab. Um, so these are two interesting studies looking at the costs associated with brain injury, with rehab and not getting rehab. And this study, this was interesting. So they looked at, you know, was it more cost effective to have a continuous chain of rehab, right? So they go from acute care to acute rehab to whatever to whatever, um, or to have it broken up. And the answer obviously, because I'm talking to you about it, is to have a continuous chain of rehab. Going from um, the acute care hospital to acute rehab is much more cost efficient. Um, then if you look at it in terms of life care costs, this was, this was very clever how they did this. So they took um, a group of patients, right? And then they took, they got some uh, life care planners and they gave them the person's information upon admission to rehab and then they gave them the information again upon discharge and they had them create two life care plans, one from the beginning and one at the end. Uh, and what they showed is after rehab, there was significant reduction uh, in life care costs long term, according to these life care planners. Okay. Now the question is, well, who gets into rehab? Um, and yeah, I was having this, co this conversation earlier today. So even within our model systems, we know that there are significant disparities about who gets into rehab, who doesn't get into rehab. Whether it's insurance-based issues, whether it's race-based issues, you know, this particular study looked at race uh, compared with or without insurance. And looking at the odds ratios, you can see, you know, that even people with insurance who are black, Hispanic, Asian, or other ethnic minorities get into rehab significantly less uh, than, people, than people who are white who have insurance, right? So the accessibility to rehab isn't uniform across the board. Okay, so again, brain injury rehab is effective, but what about, like, a, do you really need a program that's dedicated to neuro rehab? Can't you just have you know, intense acute rehab? And the answer is you could, but the comprehensive neuro rehab is better. 
All right, this particular study looked at productivity. Um, they measured productivity, whether the person was working or volunteering. Uh, and what they found is that the people who went to this neuro rehab uh, specific program, 89% were productive, whereas 55% of the control group. And the control group were people who still got acute rehab. It just wasn't brain injury specific. Right? It wasn't geared towards neuro recovery. And I think this study came out of one of the Scandinavian countries, maybe Finland. Um, so the healthcare systems are a little bit different, so they can kind of study these things. Um, so this one, okay, great. We know brain re injury rehab is good. We know it's effective. We know it reduces costs. Uh, we know that we should go to uh, a place to maximize function that specializes in neural rehab, right? That's better. Now, are all the neural rehab places the same? And unfortunately, the answer is no. Um, here, this was an interesting study where they looked at the different model system centers, right? So there are, I forget, 14 model system centers across the country. So these are places that are picked out um, by the government. You have to apply for them for their excellence in brain injury rehab. And what they found is that the results were not uniform across the board. All right? So th there were large differences in, in patient characteristics across the centers and the significant differences in functional outcomes as well. All right? So, um, yeah. So again, not all, even brain injury rehab is the same. Okay, and then this one, this study looked at length of, length of treatment, right? Length of stay is a huge issue, right? We all know that it's a big issue. We all are trying to contain length of stay. But here, this was an interesting study, and looking at where the study was completed, it was actually completed at a subacute rehab um, that specializes in brain injury, so a bit of a different situation than we tend to deal with. Um, and what they found is that people who stayed longer had better functional outcomes um, down the line. But again, these are pretty atypical cases. They're talking about a mean time of therapy of 409 days, which, yeah, exactly. Um, but interesting nonetheless, because you know, with those long-term uh, treatments, people did tend to get better. All right, and then a quick word about employment. So looking at what affects employment after a moderate to severe injury, you know, they, they divide it up into personal factors, which you can read here, and environmental factors as well. And what they found was, looking at the odds ratios, really the biggest driver, <laughs> pun not intended, um, was the ability to drive, uh, about whether the person was employed um, at one year follow-up. So the other things that they looked at were obviously the severity, support from friends and family was huge. If they didn't need a lot of services after they left was also important. Uh, and then just a brief word on so medical complications. Um, people haven't really looked at this so, so much, which is probably a shame. It really needs to be done. Um, but just looking at since we're considering brain injury, traumatic brain injury as a chronic condition, you know, what are the things that may come up down the line? And this particular paper talked about arthritis, that there was a higher rate of arthritis in people with brain injury, at least up to the age of 65, at which point it leveled out. Higher rates of visual problems, hearing problems, and of course, epilepsy, which we would expect. Um, and then in terms of mortality, so especially acutely, you know, moderate to severe injury, obviously, significantly increases the um, potential mortality. 
Uh, overall, there's at least a seven-year reduction in lifespan after moderate to severe traumatic brain injury. Uh, and even in the milds, there's a small but statistically significant reduction in the long-term survival. And then these are the medical issues that could pop up. Okay, so not too bad. All right, so again, conclude, how, in order to maximize recovery, it's really important to look at traumatic injury or really any injury as more of a chronic condition as opposed to an event. Um, it's important because it kind of changes our outlook as uh, clinicians on how we're approaching people with injury. It also kind of, it affects their outlook. Um, and you know, over time maybe in improves their acceptance and then their behavioral modifications uh, and how they function. Uh, the earlier you intervene, the better. So day one, you know, in the trauma bay um, or in the ICU, makes a difference. The earlier we get in there, the better people do. Neuroplasticity, um, which we talked about, you know, improves the outcomes from rehab. It's what we are doing when people come to us, you know, whether it's through medications, whether it's through um, exercise, whether it's through therapy, whether it's through, you know, there are different um, stimulating factors. You know, I was talking with somebody the other day who had a cochlear implant, and that works through neuroplasticity, right? Um, which kind of opens the door in terms of devices that may help improve neuroplasticity as well. Um, brain injury rehab, again, preaching to the choir, but it's cost effective, it improves productivity, and improves employability. Um, perhaps longer lengths of stay may be beneficial, uh, especially in the older or more severely injured populations. Uh, that's it, thank you. For more information about Kessler Foundation and our researchers, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.